Trail and Ultra Runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. As always, I'm your humble host, Coach Jason Coop. And on this episode of the podcast, it is about a topic that is going to be near and dear to anybody who has done a multi day race or has done one of the more recent 200 mile races that is popping up. It is how we can utilize sleep deprivation training, or let me let me rephrase that a little bit, how we can potentially utilize some type of sleep deprivation training in order to combat it during the race itself. This is an area that as a coach, I am quite miffed and befuddled with. I don't know how to actually prescribe sleep deprivation training or if it is beneficial for athletes. All too often, what I try to focus on when I'm working with athletes is the period of time in advance of an event to where they can bank sleep and also the sleep strategies during the race itself. It's unknown to me and it's unknown to a lot of the research community out there that if any sort of sleep deprivation training is in fact beneficial for athletes and if it is, when using a sleep deprivation training protocol, how deleterious or detrimental is it is it to the actual training process which you need to go through anyway and so on the podcast today i have one of the researchers that can provide some answers to this very mysterious question and shiara gatoni shiara is a researcher and a strength and conditioning coach she holds a bachelor of science in exercise and sports sciences from the university of rona a master's degree in sports science and training methodologies from the University of Verona, a master's in sports and health sciences from the University of Exeter. She also has completed her PhD program at the School of Sports and Exercise Sciences at the University of Kent. And for those of you not in the know, the University of Kent right now is an absolutely baller exercise science program. They are producing some of the best research and some of the most intelligent minds in the field right now. I wanted to bring on Chiara to talk about a very specific case study that was recently published that is titled Sleep Deprivation Training to Reduce the Negative Effects of Sleep Loss on Endurance Performance. And although this is a single case study, and I wanna take the time to emphasize that, this is one person that went through a sleep sleep deprivation training protocol. I do think that there is something to this. You longtime listeners of the podcast will know I don't mind bringing on people with novel solutions to problems onto the podcast if they can tell me what the physiological underpinnings are and we caveat what we find in that type of research or in those types of novel solutions with the entire context of a training program. And I, what I found through the, throughout the conversation that I had with Shiara is we could do just that. We could take apart what she found out in the single case study. We can take it for what it's worth. We can wrap it around the context of the entirety of the training program. And there seems to be some sort of physiological underpinning with the intervention that this single case study subject actually undertook. So with that as a little bit of a backdrop, Buckle up, drink some caffeine. Here is my conversation with Shiara Gatoni, all about if sleep deprivation strategies will actually work in an ultramarathon context. I appreciate you coming on all the way from London. Um, right out of the gate, why, why are you in London? Because that's not where you're, where you've been based out of recently. Is that correct? Um. Actually, well, I, I'm Italian, first off, but I've been living here in the UK for nine years now. Um, I used to work at the University of Kent. I did my PhD there, uh, and then I stopped working there as a research assistant and uh, first and then research associate after, uh, with uh, under the supervision of uh, Professor Samarcora. Uh, and then I, uh, and then, you know, COVID came uh, and a lot of things changed and I found, uh, a, a new job here in London. So I'm working as a research fellow at UCL, um, at the department of orthopedics and musculoskeletal science, but I'm still part of the, 
of uh, San Marcora's um, research group. So I'm working with him too. I think yeah. I think COVID kind of messed up everybody's quote unquote home base because some people that were like yes. planning on being, you know, wherever they were going to be for like 18 months, they ended up being there for three or four years. And it sounds like you kind of fell into that uh, proverbial <laughs> trap as well. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Indeed. <laughs> um, you have a you have a really interesting educational background that I was uh, not entirely familiar with until you sent it over to me. So so the listeners can get to know you a little bit better. Can you just go over that background so that we can kind of appreciate the perspective, the different perspectives, more importantly, that you're coming from in terms of how you can look at not only athletic performance, but also human performance? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I started my um, university uh, journey in Italy. I did uh, my bachelor degree and my first master degree in uh uh, at the University of Verona. Uh, and then uh, I worked for uh, three years as a strength and conditioning coach for uh, the under 23 um, football team, uh, in, uh, which is uh, Chievo Verona. Now it doesn't exist anymore since last year. Um, they had huge uh, financial problems. But at that time, uh, they used to be in Serie A. So it was like a really, a really good experience to me. And uh, I, I always had in my mind to do a PhD. So after these three years, I decided to, to go abroad. Um, and I did a, a second master first. I didn't feel really ready to be in the UK. You know, my English wasn't that, that, that good at that time. Uh, and I wanted to learn more. Uh, also, the way you study in the US and in England is uh, in the UK is slightly different from how yeah. we, we study in Italy. So I thought that doing a second master was was a good idea for me to start in a new country. And uh, I did a master in uh, um, sport and health sciences uh, at the University of Exeter. Uh, and then I applied for a PhD at the University of Kent. Uh, and actually, I, I won the scholarship uh, over there. Um, I like the topic, uh, that's why I applied for that, because uh, I thought it was something different from um, um, all the other topics that I found uh, around, uh, because, uh, yeah, I focused uh, on um, the effects of mental fatigue and sleep deprivation uh, on endurance performance, uh, and also we tried to develop new forms of uh, uh, training, uh, to, to further improve performance. So I thought it was something new, and it was, and I loved the topic. Uh, and then from, from there, I kept working with Samar Kora. Uh, I don't know if you know him, but he's, uh, he's great. He's a great researcher, he's a yeah. professor. Um, he created this uh, a psychobiological model. Um, I strongly believe in that, so uh, I kept working with him uh, as a researcher. Uh, and now, you know, uh, COVID came. <laughs> um, he went. He went back to Italy, and uh, I decided to stay here. So I found a new job here in London. So it's a new adventure to me. Something uh, slightly different from what I do, but I try to keep working on my first topic. Um, too. Yeah. And, and just like in the U S and the UK, we tend to exploit our military personnel for a lot of the research that you do. They make, they're one of the few subject groups that actually, that, that makes good and readily available guinea pigs to study sleep deprivation and, uh, and, and sleep restriction. So I can definitely appreciate that because here in the U S much of that research comes out of our military branch, or at least originates in our, in our military branch. And it seems to do the, the same in the UK. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so we're, we're going to talk, a, we're going to talk a lot about sleep res restriction and sleep deprivation and the impacts on performance. But since you've been researching this, I'm going to kind of ask you the million dollar question, like right out of the gate. And then we're going to get to why the answer to that question can be can be true or false. So in your in your observation and through your research, do you think that sleep deprivation training 
irrespective of what the protocol can actually be or the intervention can actually be, do you think that that can positively impact and we'll, and we'll stick to endurance because I know you have a broad uh, background in, in this. Do you think that that can positively impact endurance performance when sleep deprivation is part of the performance context so that the event lasts over 24 hours or something like that? Okay, uh, that's an interesting question. Um, just my opinion, I would say yes, but of course, uh, in science, you cannot, um, you cannot only trust on opinions, you know, so uh, we need to be careful. Uh, I would never suggest uh, sleep deprivation training uh, uh, before doing a proper randomized control trial. So as you uh, rightly said, we did a, uh, we first did a, a case study on a single uh, subject, on a single athlete. And it seems to be well tolerated. It, it was well tolerated by this athlete, but uh, of course we need to do uh, more studies. And by a randomized control study, I mean like having two groups of athletes or military personnel, depending also um, where you find uh, the fundings, you know, from yeah. if military yeah. personnel, if, if the, I don't know, MOD or other um, groups are interested. Uh, of course, you need to test that type of subjects uh, of population. But uh, yeah, you need to have two groups and see whether, uh, whether the sleep deprivation training will add uh, something to the already done physical type of training. Yeah, sorry, sorry to like hit you with the loaded question right ahead of the gate, but I think that that's the initial hook for the listeners because I think it's 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 fairly well understood, and some people will contend that it's extremely well understood that sleep deprivation or sleep restriction impacts performance in a myriad of different ways. Whether we're talking about skill, like a shooting type of deal, like a, like pistol shooting, or even free throw shooting, which has been very well studied. And also endurance performance and also strength performance as well. And we can kind of like line all of those up. There's been a number of uh, meta-analyses that, that have started to compare this. So it's very, very, it's very clear that it impacts performance to like different degrees. The intervention side of it is a whole different kettle of fish because to use an English phrase since you're in the UK right now, um, because it's one thing to know that yeah, of course, right? If you go without sleep for 48 hours, everything's going to be impacted and we can estimate what the impact is. But how to circumvent that or how to prepare for it is a completely different question. And then it's the one that the athletes in this audience is going to be more interested in. So we're going to explore that a little bit using the conduit of this case study that you have alluded to earlier. So you can add the caveats into this case study as you, you know, as you wish, because it's your, it's, it, it's your work, but can you go and describe what, what the intervention was for this individual and then what you found out after you went through that intervention? Yeah, of course. So, uh, basically, um, what we do, what we did, uh, was to, uh, we, we thought, you know, that, uh, uh we train our body and, uh, um, to generate some physiological adaptations and to therefore increase our performance because uh, that's the main uh, final aim uh, for an athlete. Uh, and uh, we also recently tested uh, brain endurance training, uh, which is another type of training that uh, we developed with uh, some, what was initially developed by Summer Cora and then uh, we further developed it throughout these years. Uh, and uh, we saw that by uh concurrently training uh, body and brain uh, you can further improve your endurance performance okay so we said uh, uh since sleep deprivation is uh, a state that anyway generates uh, cognitive fatigue uh, it's a mental state uh, it generates a lot of effort a lot of stress uh, uh why can't we uh why can't we train it? Why can't we see like uh, sleep deprivation as, a, uh, in this case, as a positive thing uh, right. to improve performance? Uh, as an adaptable as, system, essentially. That's the way I've, I've yeah. kind of viewed it. It's an adaptable system in your in your estimation. Or why can't we view it as an adaptable system? 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so we decided to basically uh, try it on a single subject uh, just to just just to start. Uh, we did a uh, six weeks of sleep deprivation training, which consisted in uh, uh, not sleeping uh, once per week. And uh, uh, while continuing uh, training uh, from a physical perspective, uh, as uh, the athlete would have normally done, you know, so he kept doing the normal um, training sessions and he added uh, an extra night of sleep deprivation per week. Um, and we tested him before and after the six weeks. Uh, we also uh, created a, a new thing that, to the best of my knowledge, I've never seen in, uh, in, in the literature, to be honest, because uh, uh, ultra-endurance uh, athletes uh, are, are not uh, so much tested, unfortunately. So we, we created a multi-day lab test in order to, to test him. And what we did, um, well, the multi-day test consisted in five days, um, testing uh, in which uh, in the morning the athlete had to run uh, two hours on the treadmill at a constant pace and uh, at the same time we were alternating uh, nights of uh, uh, sleep and sleep deprivation, sleep and sleep deprivation and sleep again. So basically he had two nights of sleep deprivation uh, in the middle. And uh, uh, of course, we were monitoring him. Uh, we tested him uh, from an electrophysiological perspective. Also, we measured the uh, uh, electroencephalography. Um, we gave him uh, several questionnaires uh, in order to understand uh, uh, the mental, uh, well, the, the workload perceived, both from a mental and physical perspective, the effort perceived uh, uh, throughout the training uh, period uh, he was monitored with a gps uh, with um, other several questionnaires to check his mood uh, to check uh, uh, if he you know we, we were a bit worried uh, um, uh, we wanted to check uh, uh, and to be sure that he didn't reach any sort of uh, overreaching functional overreaching or overtraining uh, because you know, we don't know right, how we could have right. reacted to right. uh, six nights of sleep deprivation in, in six weeks. Um, what we found out, interestingly, is that, first of all, as I mentioned before, he well tolerated uh, the, um, the training and uh, he didn't reach any sort of uh, overtraining or functional overreaching. Uh, and uh, also... Uh, Something really interesting is that throughout the six weeks, uh, his uh, uh, sleepiness level, um, his subjective sleepiness level decreased. Uh, so basically, he ga we gave him a questionnaire mm. in which uh, we asked him uh, his uh, level of sleepiness. Uh, and uh, at the end of the six weeks, it was much lower than... Uh, what the, the way we, when uh, he started, basically. Indicating that um, there is some sort of a adaptation that was going on during that training period. J just to kind of like encapsulate that for the listeners. Yeah. The, the intervention, right, that you're using or the intervention protocol that you're using is a, a six-week period where the athlete is foregoing sleep entirely for one night. It was on Sundays per week. And then he was maintaining, he or she, I don't know if the, if, anyway, the athlete was maintaining yeah. their normal training program throughout that entire time. And yeah. then you put them through kind of a testing process, which consisted of these two hour sub-maximal runs for several days in a row. Yeah, it was a sub-maximal sub -maximal run. Uh, who did it for five consecutive five. days, pre-training pre uh, and uh, post-training. Um, it is um, average intensity, average uh, run speed of this uh, previous couple of races, let's say. And um, uh, apart from that, before the running uh, testing, we also measure his... Uh, um, 
uh, electrical activity at the brain level. So we measure electroencephalography, as I said. In order that we did a test uh, who's a validated one to measure objectively uh, sleepiness, so sleepiness level. So together with the questionnaires, uh, we also had a more objective uh, measure of sleepiness. And that's another interesting result because uh, compared to the baseline, so compared to the uh, first measurements done before the training program, the training period, after the training period, so after uh, sleep deprivation training, uh, uh, the results of the electroencephalography indicated uh, uh, less levels of sleepiness, uh, which is something interesting too. And uh, another thing that we uh, that we noticed and that we uh, saw is that perception of effort during running slightly decreased after sleep deprivation training, uh, together with uh, effort perceived and uh, mental uh, demand perceived. And the 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 testing protocol that you mentioned is something that you kind of made up right? You're, they're running for five consecutive days of two hours and there's two days of complete sleep, sleep deprivation. What, so what was the timing of it? Is it like two and then one and then two and then one, or like, how did the, how did that get spaced out? Uh, you mean the nights of sleep deprivation? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Um, so basically, uh, first night sleep, second night sleep deprivation, third night sleep, fourth night sleep deprivation, then sleep again. Got it. So, so not a different, yeah. I mean, a lot of athletes out there that are listening to this are like, that's almost like a 200 mile race. I mean, the running periods are obviously very much shorter, but in terms of how yeah. you would sleep during a 200 mile race, for those of you not watching the YouTube video, you've got a good grin on your face because it's probably something that you were <laughs> thinking about, but take me through if there was anything else behind that behind coming up with that type of testing protocol, because as you mentioned, it's novel, right? It's something that you guys just essentially decided to do for this uh, case study. Yeah, well, regarding the test itself, uh, it's uh, totally novel and we decided to try it uh, because I checked in the literature, there's nothing on that. Uh, There are a few studies in which they did a uh, maybe three days uh, of testing in a row, but um, it, it was not related to ultra endurance. It was not done to test uh, ultra endurance performance. So, so we thought there's nothing in the literature. It would be uh, really nice to have something, uh, some material, you know, some some tools so that we can use uh, with uh, this type of population uh, with ultra endurance athletes. Uh, of course, it needs to be validated uh, and we need to see if it's uh, a re- reliable type of test uh, before using it uh, uh, properly. That's <laughs> This case study was a really a, yeah. a, a, novel, a novel study. We tested several things, so several new innovative things. So let me try to encapsulate this a little bit for the audience and you can add to it or, or, or correct as I'm or correct me as I'm seeing it. The first takeaway when I looked at this was that the sleep deprivation intervention, so the training intervention is what we would normally think about. You do strength training intervention, you can do an intensified, you know, uh, training intervention where you increase mileage or increase intensity or whatever. In this case, the intervention is the sleep deprivation and intervention of six weeks. First thing that was well tolerated by the athlete which is something we're always concerned about when we're actually coaching athletes is, is, is the intervention going to be tolerated by the athlete and not be deleterious, right? You're avoiding the, you're avoiding the negative in that sense. And then the second thing in terms of its actual impact on, uh, on the, well, there is some underlying physiological impact that you can measure via the test that you were putting the athlete through pre and post those two things are kind of what i what i take away from it it's it's still a question of is that ultimately going to impact or improve their performance right that's the thing that we're at at the end of the day as 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 coaches and athletes but in terms of the intervention being well tolerated at least by this person you check that box in terms of seeing some sort of uh, some sort of physiology that's underpinning a potential performance imp- improvement. I can kind of like check that that box as well. Is that how you see it, or would you add any caveats to it? 
Oh, okay. Yeah, is that how I see it? Uh, um, uh, I would like to add a few things. So, like, first off, uh, we have already re- received uh, a lot of uh, criticisms uh, from, uh, <laughs> sure. Uh, sure. yeah, from uh, some of uh, some colleagues of us uh, yeah. from other research groups. Uh, um, Apparently saying that uh, this type of training uh, is dangerous uh, and ineffective. Uh, I understand the the concerns that uh, other people and athletes can have, and indeed we are not suggesting to to do that right now. Uh, we're just proposing something new. Uh, but I, I'm a bit uh, when I hear these uh, such strong statements, you know, I'm a bit. Uh, um, shocked uh, in a way, maybe shocked is a strong uh, word, but like, uh, I don't understand how someone can say that it doesn't work. It's dangerous and ineffective if it's not been tested already. Right, so, right, right. um, we need to be careful. And of course, uh, I, I'm the first one to say, uh, the athletes not to use it at the moment, uh, to wait for more proper studies, experiments, and let's see what's happened. But, uh, from what we found out, and we spoke also with this athlete, uh, it, it looks like that um, it, it's uh, it's not a bad thing. And uh, we tried uh, when we decided how to to create uh, uh, and to uh, generate this type of training. Uh, we uh, on purpose decided to use. Uh, um, sleep deprivation once per week because of course we all know that sleep is really important for recovery in training especially and uh, uh, that not sleeping for uh, many days can be uh, can be really negative and deleterious uh, for performance but for many other things Uh, um, so when people talk about chronic sleep deprivation this is not the case This is uh, an intermittent sort of sleep deprivation. It's not a chronic one. And this is why we decided to use intermittent, because we believe that chronic is bad. And intermittent might be uh, the best way to to overcome the negative effects of sleep deprivation. So you have the time to recover from uh, that night of sleep deprivation. At at the same time, maybe adapt yourself to it. it the, and the way that I interpret that is that there's a dose response relationship to anything you do, to exercise, to medicine, to whatever. And what you're trying, what you're intentionally, I'm emphasizing that, that, that word very deliberately, what you're intentionally deciding to do with the training intervention is to, is to utilize enough sleep deprivation that you think is going to induce an adaptation, but not so much that is dangerous or deleterious. And I, I got to be honest with you, like, cause I see some of this criticism that gets floated around, not as, not as much as you do, obviously, but I see some of it and, and I, I kind of have a little bit of a skeptical eye on it as, as, as well. It lines up with what we know about what people can tolerate from a sleep deprivation or sleep restriction standpoint. Yeah. If you're doing like four or five nights of sleep deprivation or severe sleep restriction in a row, yeah, sure. That's going to be a a pretty heavy toll to pay, but as any new parent knows, or as anybody who has, you know, had to take a transatlantic flight or had to stay up all night studying for exams or kind of whatever, you can usually tolerate one night, maybe two nights of like heavy sleep restriction. And, and then you're going to have to like apply some sort of recovery. So, I mean, so anyway, from my perspective, it meets the reasonability test for whatever that's worth. <laughs> okay. No, but I, I, under, I understand. Uh, it's good to have doubts, you know. Yeah. I'm the first one uh, who I'm doubtful because I don't know. I don't know how it works. Yeah. But I also know that, for example, um, intermittent fasting is used too. And uh, it doesn't make you die, okay, <laughs> at the same time. It, it's true, it's true, because I have rec- we have received uh, really strong uh, uh, statements, you know. But for the same reason, uh, okay, chronic starvation uh, leads to death, okay, <laughs> as chronic sleep deprivation can lead yeah. to death, uh, of course. 
But that's why we decided to go for the intermittent <laughs> type of sleep deprivation. Yeah, that's a good I, analogy. I that's a good analogy that everybody can that everybody can apply to. Okay, so let's let's go down the mechanistic rabbit hole a little bit because you've got something that's novel, right? You've got a novel intervention. It's kind of re- meets the reasonability test. It's obviously a case study, which I think both of us will emphasize that it's a case study. It's on one person. We can't draw too many conclusions from it and things like that. When you look at this as a scientist from a mechanistic perspective, what what's the adaptive? What is the how can you describe the adaptive process? Because that's always what I struggle with with sleep deprivation. Yeah, we can see the you know the beginning and end points of what you can measure, but unlike muscle hypertrophy or some sort of aerobic development where we're increasing red cell mass or something like that, where we can pinpoint these like really narrow physiological mechanisms uh, that are a result of a training intervention. This is an area that I, A, I'm just unfamiliar with, but I, I, it's, it's not as robustly understood. So what do you think under, what do you think underpins the changes that you're clearly seeing in this case study and that you can theorize that you can see in any other intervention? What physiological underpinnings that can you actually see unfolding? I think uh, that uh, the mechanism uh, underneath uh, um, performance from uh, this perspective uh, is related to uh, the mechanisms related to perception of effort. We saw, for example, in our case study that uh, perception of effort uh, uh, decreased post sleep deprivation training, uh, and also uh, the perception of effort uh, um, and uh, the, the mental demand perceived by the athletes in, himself uh, were lower after the period uh, of uh, the, the training period. It's also been um, seen in some studies uh, on acute sleep deprivation that it seems that uh, performance is impaired when you're sleep deprived uh, through perception of effort. So basically perception of effort uh, is higher and and therefore you perform uh, much worse when you're sleep deprived. Um, The mechanisms related to perception of effort uh, involve certain specific areas uh, of uh, our brain, uh, which are uh, in particular the so-called anterior cingulate cortex, the uh, premotor and motor areas of the cortex. Uh, what's happening? That um, the higher the activity of these uh, uh, of these areas, uh, the higher the perception of effort when you do exercise, for example, but also when you do a cognitive task. We're not talking only about um, physical uh, activities. Um, what's happening? Uh, uh, in my perspective, at least, uh, what I think uh, it happens when you do sleep deprivation training uh, is that you uh, adapt this, uh, by doing this training, you adapt these areas, uh, um, which uh, in turn will lower their activity when you perform. Consequently, perception of effort is lower, and uh, consequently, and finally, you tend to improve your performance. It's a it's a complicated topic to explain in a few, in few words, but I, yeah. hope, I hope I was clear. Well, anytime we're talking about the brain, it's it's very difficult to kind of unwind because there's so many intertwining things going on all at the same time. I'll leave it at that. Things going on at the same time that as opposed to like muscular physiology or even cardiopulmonary physiology, it, it, it becomes this big mess where we have to lump everything into something like yeah. perception, right? Um, as opposed to, as opposed to peeling it apart. But I, I mean, I can kind of tell you what, what I've experienced from a coaching perspective, having athletes in these situations where they have to go into a multi-day event, three, four days or whatever, and we're trying to figure out how to combat sleep deprivation is I've always viewed it through the lens that the advantage that you can get out of any type of sleep deprivation training is really rooted in 
understanding how you how you react and how you can perform in those conditions. And that's the best vocabulary that I could really use to, to describe it. And I mean, I, and I don't know where else to kind of like go from where else to kind of like go from there in terms of making, uh, kind of making a case for using an intervention like this, right? Six weeks, you do one day of total sleep deprivation. And as coaches, we can kind of contrive it. Maybe it's five weeks, maybe it's four weeks, maybe it's 10 days. Every 10 days, you do the sleep deprivation training, or instead of an entire night, you do two hours of sleep a night. You know, there's a zillion ways to do it. But in terms of the value proposition to the athlete, I've always kind of viewed it through the lens of an experiential one. Right. Not so much of a physical one, which we typically think about when we talk about endurance training or strength training interventions where your muscles get bigger, your freaking lungs can can transport or your blood can transport more oxygen and things like that. So so I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say with that is, is it lines up with just my anecdotal. This is why I would introduce this intervention in the first place. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> that's good. Uh, but I, I, I think you're right, especially um, when we talk about ultra endurance, so such long distances, uh, long distance races, competitions. Uh, I think that we need to start talking about what's happening here too in the brain. Um, it's no, it's not well studied. There are a few. Uh, I've seen there are a few studies uh, in uh, um, ultra endurance uh, uh, trials uh, on, uh, for example, cognitive performance during the race uh, itself, which is important too, because uh, apart from uh, being physically prepared, you need to be also cognitive, cognitively prepared. Sometimes you, uh, you compete in very hard environments uh, and you are sleep deprived at the same time and uh, you, you need to be vigilant uh, uh, for several days uh, and it, it's hard. So I think that um, looking for new, uh, new things, uh, new types of training uh, that can help uh, endurance, ultra endurance athletes is, is essential. I want to I want to kind of talk about what you want to study next and then circle back to maybe some practical implementations for athletes that are looking at this. And I know the latter question is a very difficult one to answer, considering how like early stage some of the some of the knowledge set that we're getting out of this research is. But maybe you can entertain me with some of your thoughts. If I were bringing you on as a consultant, what would you actually do type of questions? <laughs> but you, you've already mentioned this, right? You've already mentioned a little bit of this. So you now have some initial, you know, initial case study, pilot data and things like that. Where do you want to take it from here? Do you want to look at the intervention side or do you want to look at different ways that you can test performance in a sleep deprived state? Like how, like, what do you think is more important to understand first in this like research chicken and egg game that you're ultimately going to have to play? Cause you can only do, you know, so many things at once. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, as I mentioned before, as I said to you before, I'd like to do a proper randomized control uh, study. So with, uh, uh, two big, nice groups of athletes, uh, possibly, and see the effects of sleep deprivation training uh, on uh, performance. Uh, but also, I would I would keep using uh, um, electrophysiological measurements uh, to have a proper insight, you know, of what is happening at the brain level too. That's your window, uh, right? That's your window into the physiology, essentially. Yeah, 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 for sure. Because I think that uh, the, the next step would be, I, I'd like at least to to see what's happening at the brain level while you are exercising through functional magnetic resonance, for example, and see what's happening in those areas uh, where perception of effort uh, is involved. Uh, I'd like to, to find a way. Um, at the moment... The, the technology doesn't require us to use uh, uh, functional magnetic resonance uh, during uh, uh, proper exercise because there would be too much noise. Yeah. But but maybe starting with something uh, less demanding uh, with a um, smaller 
types of activities uh, or physical activities, it, it would be it would be good too. Because I think that's uh, that's the key. Perception of effort is the key in uh, in, in sports uh, such as uh, yours. <laughs> Yeah, it's a huge area. And I, you, this is probably unknown to you, but I spent a good chunk of my book actually using Sam's uh, psychobiological model of fatigue as a construct for how to work okay. on specifically the mental game of ultra running and how that impacts things. That's a kind of another topic. Do you think that when you expand the group that you're going to start to see some of the prototypical individual variances start to get teased out like we typically see in 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 like more what I'll call like more traditional physiological research whether an altitude intervention right is a is a good example of that where we see people that have kind of different responses to different uh, uh altitude training protocols do you think you're going to see something like that or is it going to be more universal because it's centered around the human brain no, no, you're totally right. I think I'm going to see a, a lot of uh, um, differences uh, between individuals. Uh, and this is something that I forgot to mention, uh, but I like to test too. Um, sleep, uh, we start to see the sleep is, uh, as many other things, genetically determined. Yeah. So also uh, the way you deal to sleep is genetically determined, yeah. it seems at least. So um for me like uh not sleeping for an entire night uh, uh it can be <laughs> like a, a really bad thing i wouldn't be able to do anything the day after for i'm you, in your for corner example. i'm in your corner i'm the exact <laughs> same some, way <laughs> yeah for someone else it's not it's not the same so it would be no. good also to to see how it, how it works based on um uh, genetic traits, you know, and I, I know any difference. I, I know athletes that for whatever reason, they're just really good under sleep deprived condition with no, no rhyme or reason to it. It's not like they've trained it or whatever. They can just tolerate it for, for whatever reason. So practice would back up that 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 sentiment that there is some sort of genetic component to to it that I think is actually a fairly robust one just because I see the discrepancy in people who can tolerate it and people who who can't and and to date it's not something that people have robustly trained. Yeah, 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 definitely. Absolutely. Okay, so now I'm going to put you on the spot as a as a consultant, right? So you can put, take off your scientist hat and put on your consultant hat. So that gives you a little bit more like liberty to to tell what you think versus what you've studied, right? Which I know a lot of scientists have a have they they're very reluctant to do. So there are athletes listening to this that are training for multi-day and 200-mile races, right? And they want to know if a sleep deprivation protocol is a something that they should undertake. B is effective and then see exactly what they should do. Now I know those are, th those are kind of impossible questions to kind of generalize, but if you were consulting with athletes or even in a military kind of context where endurance performance is contingent upon how little they have to sleep and how fast they can locomote when they're actually awake, what would you advise that they do during the training process to try to ready themselves for that particular demand uh, of the event. Okay. Uh, so if I speak as a scientist, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't recommend to use a sleep deprivation training yet, at least because, because we don't know, uh, we don't know where the moment sure. uh, defects, uh, if it's effective, uh, really effective uh, or, or what. Um, and, and, and I would suggest uh, to, to sleep well, uh, as a, as a good, uh, as a good process for recovery. Okay. But from a consultant perspective and, um, based on the fact that I've, I've been an athlete too, uh, I come from team sports, but, uh, I, I used to play, uh, I used to train a lot. Uh, and I know that uh, athletes uh, always want to try maybe something new or uh, uh, test themselves. Uh, 
Uh, and I already know that there are uh, several ultra endurance athletes uh, who do that. So because I've um, yeah. I've been to uh, Tour, Tour de Jean. Yeah, I did Tour de Jean a few years ago. <laughs> Sleep oh, was really? a big oh, issue okay. for me there. Oh, girl, we're, we're going to talk about that for a while. <laughs> I believe so. I believe you. Um, they already told me that some of them uh, were already kind of uh, training themselves uh, yeah. mm, not to sleep. Maybe not in a proper, um, mm, you know, uh, organized way, uh, but they were just trying randomly. So in that case, uh, at that point, I would suggest them to try it uh, um, in a more um, organized and well-planned way instead of doing that uh, randomly when they, yes, uh, or in two weeks' time, another night of sleep deprivation. Uh, But yeah... I, I cannot uh, at the moment. I don't feel myself to uh, to suggest uh, to use it uh, right now. It's um, tricky. I know I'm putting you on the spot with it because you <laughs> yes. have to wear two hats. There, it's tricky. I'll give you an anecdote. Maybe you can ping off this anecdote a little bit, and you'll you'll appreciate that. You'll appreciate this given uh, given your heritage. The Italians, <laughs> in particular were obsessed about doing their sleep deprivation and in a very prototypical Italian fashion, you can appreciate this too, were completely haphazard in doing it. Like there was no pattern between anything. They'd be like, uh, you know, two weeks ago I did, you know, three nights without any sleep. And then 10 weeks before that I did one night It's very Italian. I just kind of like did it on a whim type of deal. But for whatever reason, the Italians, whenever, whenever I went over to Tour de Jeant or just talked to them about it, that was their MO is that they did it. They did do sleep de- deprivation training. They felt that it got, they felt that it made a big impact. But to your point, it was so haphazard in nature, I couldn't really pin down any rhyme or reason for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I heard uh, the stories for, uh, from Tour de Jean's athletes too, so probably we, we spoke the with same the people. same people. <laughs> <laughs> probably, I don't know. But uh, yeah, if, I, if uh, someone wants to try it, uh, I would suggest uh, not to, to do that maybe in the um, uh, week before the race. Uh, just uh, have some rest before the race uh, and uh, try it maybe a little bit um, separated, you know, from, uh, from, from the race itself. What do you think the, I, I hate asking you this because it's going to be an, I don't know piece, but based on the physiology and what you understand, what you understand about how the brain is impacted, what do you think the legacy is of a training intervention like you did with this with this case study? And what I mean by that is, is this was over a very specific six-week period. And you see some sort of adaptation that occurs and you can understand the physiological underpinnings of that adaptation. How long does that last? And the reason I ask that is, is kind of to your point, don't do it in the last week of the race. We know that training interventions have a tail to them, right? I can introduce a high high volume period of training and that can last several weeks. I can introduce high intensity training and that might just last several days or, or a couple of weeks, right? We can make that distinction between different types of training. Can you say anything to introducing a sleep deprivation intervention in terms of how long those effects might actually last or is it just a big unknown for you? Uh, this is another big, uh, <laughs> big, big question that we would like to test, but we we don't know. Yeah. We've thought about it. That's why I yeah. said it's better to give some time between sleep deprivation training and the race itself, just to be sure, because we don't know that yet. It can be that uh, one week is enough, and uh, you don't lose, you know, the adaptations at the same time. Yeah. Uh, two weeks, uh, you're fully recovered, but adaptations tend to, uh, decrease. We don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, so, I mean, you know, when the deleterious pieces are, are removed, right. And that's when the sleep deprivation has essentially been restored. So if you have eight hours of sleep deprivation or how, whatever the total is, once you can kind of continually restore that or the, over the course of several days, the potential deleterious pieces, and you can see this in, you know, skill sports and endurance sports alike, 
essentially get uh, uh, rectified. But it's a different question uh, on the adaptation side of things, right? In one case, yes. you're preventing the negative, and in the other case, you're trying to preserve the positive. That's the exactly. unknown piece, right? Is trying to preserve the positive, and and this is part of the struggle that I have with introducing this type of intervention is, is going back to the dose response is a, I, I can't really pin down a dose, right? I can get it into an area which is kind of meets the reasonability test where it doesn't affect training too much, but I don't know how much that actually results in a positive adaptation, nor do I know. And I think you're getting to the answer to this question as well, kind of what the legacy is, like how long that adaptation would actually last before it goes back to baseline. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's, uh, I think that's the most uh, uh, difficult part uh, to test as well, because um, it's, it's difficult to say. Uh, it's going to be for sure something that we, we would like to test, uh, maybe uh, by doing uh, the same type of uh, uh, sleep deprivation training, uh, but um, of different duration or uh, starting before uh, and completing it uh, two weeks before the race or one week before the race uh, or three weeks before and see what's happening. Or six, or a four-week intervention versus a six-week six week intervention or even a two-week intervention versus a six-week intervention. Like those types of things are still kind of all unknown. It meets the reason – six weeks is pretty long, but it, but it kind of meets the yes. reasonability test, right, of you're doing it frequently enough, I guess, to get some sort of uh, – uh, perceived exertion adaptation, right. Or physiological adaptation and not so long that it becomes inconvenient or problematic. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, so more than one in less than a hundred days, <laughs> yeah. right? Cause you did six weeks, 42 days. So somewhere in between there is the right dose. <laughs> yes, I think so. <laughs> okay. Is there anything else that, uh, that, you think that athletes can start to chip away at or or do things to train for? I mean, we're looking at this in a from a binary, almost like a binary perspective, right? You're either sleeping or you're completely withdrawing all of the sleep per night. And there's a little bit of a hybrid in the middle, which is clinically referred to or, or in the in the research referred to as sleep restriction versus sleep deprivation. Do you think that there's any room for that? in terms of introducing an intervention that can, that can, that, that can be an advantage for an athlete that's going through something like this? Oh, uh, an intervention in between, you mean something, uh, like sleeping like, for uh, two hours a night instead of yeah. completely withdrawing all of the sleep. Yeah. Uh, something like, uh, mm, Banking sleep is it correct? The word banking sleep. Yes. Well, that would be that. I was going to get into that next, but yeah, that would be the opposite, where you're sleeping for more than the stereotypical eight hours per night in order to have that built up for a sleep deprivation rate. But I'm talking about from a training intervention standpoint, instead of using complete sleep deprivation for one night using oh, sleep yeah. restriction where you're only sleeping for a couple of hours a night or three hours a night to induce the same effects that you're seeing from the sleep deprivation side. Do you think that there's room for that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, we need to be careful though, because, uh, uh, for sure, if you, uh, if you do sleep restriction instead of sleep deprivation, you may want to do it, uh, not once per week, uh, but like more, uh, more often during the week, and uh, we don't know if it's uh, um, mm, if it works or not in terms of recovery. Right, there's a bigger impact because to... you have to do it more frequently. Is the counterbalance? Yeah, yeah, yeah because it, it's been uh, seen that also, like uh, if you if you do sleep restriction for a few days in a row, it's equivalent to. Uh, not to sleep uh, for one night, for example. Right. So you need to be careful to quantify how many hours of sleep restriction uh, for how long. Uh, but of course, it's something that uh, it's interesting and can be investigated. That, so that's saying, no. <laughs> well, I, I didn't want to mention this, but I'm going to go ahead since you opened the door up. I do think that from a pragmatic perspective, total sleep de deprivation using that as a as like a training tool 
is a it's a it's a less problematic way to go about to go about it because if you're using sleep restriction as you mentioned typically you have to do a few days in a row and at that point it's like okay then what is that how much training are you taking off the table and it seems that and there's more literature as opposed to this case study that will back this up that one night of complete sleep uh, complete sleep restriction isn't really that big of a deal in the total context of training as long as you're not like maximizing your total training output that you're trying to do, or you're trying to achieve the last 1% of performance that you can, that you can maximally uptake. And what, it, and what I mean by that is, is yeah, you wouldn't do that if you were going into the freaking Olympics. Like nobody would tell you to stay up all night before an Olympic 10,000 meter final. So, so they, well, the, but people take it like that whenever I mention these things, but if you're normally training and you have a reasonable background and you're not trying to squeak out every last little bit of training load or training volume one night of complete sleep restriction. It's going to suck. It's not fun and it's not the best, but it's not a like you don't need to like upend every corner of the earth to kind of cover up for that. Like people can tolerate it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And it's also been demonstrated. And yeah. sometimes also there are studies in which they didn't find any. Yeah. Um, actually any uh, decrease in performance either. Yep. So, uh, for one, just one night of sleep deprivation. So yep. um, that's my coaching yeah. rule of thumb one night and you got to suck it up two nights and then we'll, <laughs> we'll make some course corrections after two nights or if, or if it's one night and then the previous nights or whatever, there's some sort of confounding factor, then I'll adjust the training, but one night total sleep deprivation or would you sleep like crap for whatever reason? It's suck it up buttercup. Anything, anything <laughs> beyond that, then then we'll make some course corrections. Um, yeah, yeah. And also, yeah, uh, I'd like to stress the fact that uh, since you mentioned it, but we are uh, proposing this uh, type of training uh, for people who are competing uh, uh, also during nights, you know, during multi days events. So of course, I would never suggest this for a sprinter. Right. or for an 800 meter runner, you <laughs> right. know, just to, just to be clear, we are doing this to, to find a, a way to increase performance in, in this type of athletes. It's part Not of the a, context of the event, right? I, th I think that's, yeah, a, that's exactly. a very important point. It's part of the context of the event. It's, if it's not part of the context of the event, it's probably not ergogenic. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna let you off the hook. You've been a really good sport in dealing with the a lot of these theoretical questions. I know how a lot of research scientists they don't like to they they like to deal with it with what they know and what they've studied and extrapolating outside of that becomes uh, it's not in your it's it's not in your mo. It's not in a lot of scientists' mo. So I, I appreciate you entertaining that piece. This is a really fascinating piece of research, and I think as these more of these multi day events like Tour de Giant, like the Cocodona 250, and these other 200 mile races that we start that we're starting to see crop up around the world and in the u.s as they become more popular people are going to look at not only the sleep strategies that they need to deploy during the event but how to properly prepare for them because it is context of the event and it's research like this that we're just starting to like scratch the surface on right we're just starting to peel it back that i think is extremely interesting and might change my perception of sleep deprivation training, which I honestly don't deploy a lot as a, as a coach for all the reasons that we mentioned as, uh, uh, during the podcast. So I appreciate you entertaining a lot of the theoreticals here. Thank you. No problem. It was uh, nice to talk to you. Before we go, uh, oh, go ahead. No, no, nice. Uh, it, it was a nice chat. I really enjoyed it. Uh, me as well. Before before you go, I'll have links to this, uh, these, all these in the show notes. But where can people find out a little bit more about you or in the research group that you work for and some of the work that you're doing? Yeah, uh, of course. Uh, well, I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter, uh, which is uh, at Chiara Gattoni, so my name and last name. And uh, also have a ResearchGate profile in which I'm connected with my um, um, psychobiolo psychobiology uh, fatigue lab with Samar Kora. So you can find also all the other researchers who does research on that, not only on sleep, but also on uh, mental fatigue, uh, caffeine, uh, and other things related to endurance performance. 
fascinating work that you and your group is doing. And once again, I appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. All right, folks, there you have it. There you go. Much thanks to Shiara for coming on the podcast today and also the work that you do and and, and a little bit sticking your neck out on this one single case study. There's going to be a lot of people out there that are going to look at this and say, oh, it's an N of one and, you know, we can't really learn it all, all that from it. And like I said during the intro, if we take this within the context that it is presented, we don't over exaggerate it. We look at if there are some physiological underpinnings to the actual intervention, which it looks like there actually are. And then we evaluate it alongside the entire context of what an athlete needs to do from a training programming standpoint. Then we can come up with some reasonable conclusions and solutions for athletes to actually deploy in training. So I had a lot of fun with this podcast. I hope you guys did too. If you liked it, feel free to share this podcast with your friends and training partners. That is how we get the word out from the onset of this podcast. I have not taken on any sponsors or any sort of endorsers of any type. That is my commitment to the audience to bring you the best content in a completely unadulterated fashion. You can help that out by sharing this podcast with your friends. I appreciate the heck out of each and every one of the listeners out there. And as always, we will see you out on the trails.